Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another amazing episode of Market Impact Insights. In my recent book, The Impact Makers, I devote a whole chapter to how leveraging data effectively and efficiently for better decision-making is really one of the foundational aspects of exceptional leadership. So I'm really excited today to speak to a very accomplished marketing leader, but for this conversation, also someone who is so passionate about how to effectively analyze and then translate that analytics into powerful decisions to help fuel company growth. Mark Stuss is an accomplished executive advisor. He's a board member, has more than 30 years of success in the computer software technology and public relations industries. Mark was a senior marketing leader at large global companies, BMC Software, and Honeywell, and more recently, again, has taken that passion for analytics into his role as chairman and CEO of Proof Analytics. He's been an award winner, recognized as an innovator of the year, a Diamond Saber Award winner for analytics. So he knows his stuff. He's bringing that passion and some insights on how companies are breaking through and leveraging analytics for improved performance. Mark, welcome to Market Impact Insights. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. That that was that was one heck of an intro. <laughs> <laughs> for one heck of a guest, Mark. And let's start with, uh, you know, you were the senior marketing leader. You were kind of rising the corporate ladder. You were leading these global teams, right? And I'm very successful. And then you, you kind of took a pivot. You, you really went all in on this area of analytics. And I'm curious what drove your passion to make that deep dive? You know, I think that, so that's a, that started for me about 20 years ago, a little less than 20 years ago. Um, I, I think that, you know, we all have a desire to, to be significant and to feel that we have significance. Um, and I was I was in a place where I had I had been doing marketing and communications at a senior level for some years in large companies and loved the work and absolutely hated the fact that very few people in the business really had any appreciation for the value that we were creating and. Honestly, at that time, I, you know, if pressed and I was pressed uh, frequently on this, couldn't really give a by the numbers example or answer to it. Mm -hmm. I give a lot of anecdotes, right? But it just sucked. I mean, it just, it, it, it just really sucked. And so I kind of got to this very existential place, which I'm sure a lot of marketers uh, in your audience listening to this can totally get where you kind of sit there and say, look, I'm either going to strike a match 
uh, and do so, and climb climb the mountain, figure out a solution, or I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to go do something else because this is not a sustainable situation. <clears throat> In my particular case, I had a couple of conversations, including with my boss's boss, who was uh, the late Mark Hurd, uh, who was CEO of HP and and then obviously famously the CEO of Oracle for a long time. And he kind of really, I mean, he didn't know it and I didn't know it at the time, but he set me on this new path. Um, and so it took me about 10 years, but I, I, I got there. Um, and really it was probably one of the few B2B CMOs to be able to prove the impact of what we were doing on revenue margin and cash flows, as well as a lot of other things, to the satisfaction and acceptance of the C-suite and the board and people like that. And so, but it was costing me eight or nine million a year just in analytics mm-hmm. because we were, it was a brute force solution. We were, we're having to dramatically overhire data scientists just to get to the velocity of insight that was necessary. And uh, so you didn't have to be just, you know, a, a genius to figure out that this was an automation play waiting to happen. And that's, that's essentially what brought us to proof, right? Proof takes... Uh, multivariable regression analytics, aka marketing mixed modeling, uh, aka what Procter and Gamble used to call econometric analysis, uh, and we use AI and and automation to speed it up, to simplify it, to make it infinitely more scalable and a lot less expensive, and so and to bring it uh, into full operational flower. Um, with regard to the business, right? Relevance to business decision-making. And so that's really what, it, that's what it is. That's the story in a nutshell. Yeah, really cutting edge stuff. And as you were taking us through your journey, Mark, you know this, you know how many CMOs would just are envious that they wanted to be in the shoes that you just described, right? Of being able to actually effectively in a quantitative way demonstrate to C-suite, right? The value of the investment in marketing. That's that's the eternal quest, isn't it? For for marketers? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And 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 I will say this, um, and and I'm writing a book right now that's it's all about kind of like what does the modern CMO look like, right? And one of the key things uh in all the interviews that I've been doing with Fortune 1000 CEOs and CFOs and CMOs and all those guys is this is a, this dysfunction is co-owned. Um, it, it's it's not just the fault of marketing; it's very much the fault of the business as well. And what what that made me really realize was how blessed I was to have CEOs and CFOs in my career path that really supported, got behind the the climbing of this mountain, um, that were 
unwilling, as unwilling as I was, maybe for different reasons, right? But but at, they yeah. were as unwilling as I was to just accept the status quo, accept the the dysfunction as it as it had been for a long time, for as long as I've been in the profession, it's been there, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, I think a lot of CMOS would love to have that kind of support from the business and they deserve that kind of support uh, and guidance from the business. But they, you know, I, in my case, I was just really fortunate to, to have it. Yeah. That's the true strategic partnership. Now we often hear the terms data and analytics and their, their views together. They used interchangeably. Mark, what are some of the key differences and, and how do those concepts or those ideas uh, intersect? So I, I'm sure that you have heard the analogy of data is the new oil. Yeah. And like a lot of analogies, right, it breaks. But but let's just stick with that for a second. So if you take crude oil and you put it into your gas tank in your car, not only is that not going to work, but you will have totally ruined your car. Um, analytics, it, so that oil has to be refined to give the end user value. It has to be refined into gasoline or jet fuel or benzene or you know whatever it is, right? It has to move through a refinery first. Analytics is that refinery for data. Um, Data is, you know, leaving that analogy behind, right? Data is really super important. It's the raw material, the building blocks of understanding, but it is, it has some key limitations. One of which is that data is always about the past. Always and only about the past. So if we think about like, an NBA score, yeah. right? It will tell you who won, past tense, but also it will not tell you anything about that game, why the game turned out the way it did, what actually transpired. Was one team ahead for a while and then all of a sudden it flipped? What happened, right? Analytics, the, the last big point is data by itself yields no forecast because it's, it's about the past, right? So if you've seen a forecast, right, where you have like six quarters worth of information and it's moving in a trend line and they just extrapolate another three quarters after that, and of course it's moving in the same direction typically, that an extrapolation is not a forecast. For, to forecast from that data in the past, you have to have analytics. You have to have multivariable regression. And that takes all kinds of factors into the equation, most of which you have no control over. So this can be macroeconomic data, competitor action, uh, reputational data, which is you know owned by the audience. The audience decides what your reputation is, not you, right? There's a whole bunch of examples to this. And so the main difference here between data and analytics is that data is the the fundamental building blocks, but not even remotely enough. And analytics is what translates all that data 
into dynamic relational information that you can forecast a probabilistic outcome for. You can say, if, if the following things continue to be true, then this is very much what is likely to happen. And if any one of these things changes, right, then the forecast is going to change with it. And then we'll figure out what we need to do next. With data alone, you cannot do that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And the sports analogy, I love it because in my mind, I was visualizing the box score. I'm a big sports fan. I go in college football. I go in and I'll analyze the box score, you know, which kind of tells that narrative, right? And and then take a look at, at the specific drivers of performance during that. So I think that's it's easy for people to relate to that analogy. Yeah, I mean, actually, another one that's actually the one that everybody relates to is the GPS. Okay. Yep. So when the GPS gives you a route to where you need to go, that is a forecast. And then as it tracks your progress and the and then also all these factors that are invisible to you, like traffic and weather and all this kind of stuff in your future, which could either speed you up or slow you down. This is all data that's being collected, but then it's being analyzed in relationship to one another. And at some point, something could happen that says, hey, we need to reroute you um, because this was the best way forward and now it's not. Yeah. And there is so much money that companies are throwing at trying to get better insights. And, you know, even in your own experience, you mentioned as a CMO, spending millions of dollars to get those deeper level insights. So it's not that there isn't an effort being made, but in that pursuit of greater insights, what do you think makes operationalizing the analytics and, and the predictive aspect of this so challenging? Wow. Okay. That's a great question, right? Um, there's a number of answers to that, but two of the most important are the latency of the analytics. So, like we just uh, we just got a, a new customer, a very large technology company that had been doing MMM marketing mixed modeling for a long time, using a very respected um, consulting firm to do it. <clears throat> the models were recalculated every six to twelve months. Then it usually took another three months of interpretation before they could give the the final conclusions to the marketing team. So by the time the marketing team actually saw the results of MMM, even the forecasts were in the past. So it was it was all it was all retro, retrospective, right? It had no it gave them no ability to control their future. So that's that's number one, and that's not just with marketing mixed modeling or the marketing go to market kind of thing. This is a pervasive issue across data science in large corporations. The second one is there is a huge cultural chasm between the culture of data science, which is essentially a cult of precision, and business with, with and if business is a cult of anything, it's a cult of pragmatism. And so the data science community is constantly trying to 
eke out every last piece of accuracy and precision in a model. <clears throat> and that is not even remotely what the business is looking for. The business doesn't care about 95% confidence score. That's the certainty on a model. Mm -hmm. And they know if intuitively, if nothing else, that as soon as you introduce human behavior into a model, you're going to max out at somewhere around 50% confidence score. And then it, they also know that they are making decisions every day based on so much less certainty. And if you model it after the fact, most business decisions are kind of in the 20 to 30 range. Um, that they, if you can get them into <clears throat> 35 to 50, you're like a hero. <clears throat> I mean, that's, that's all that the business cares about. Um, that combined with high velocity or low latency recalculation is totally enough. But that is not the way data scientists have been trained to think. Mm. And so they get into this impasse, um, a cultural impasse, where they can't, literally can't, in many cases, can't stand to be in the same room with each other. And so the whole thing kind of suffers. One B or two B on that would be that data scientists are far more comfortable with equations and systems than they are with people as a general <laughs> statement, right? And so like there are all, lots of data science department CDOs right now are in hot, hot water in the current macro environment because they have spent tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars and years, most of the last decade on creating really intricate, very complicated data management platforms that, that right now are not generating any insights. They're not helping the business make better decisions to any significant degree. They are, to use the old phrase, roads to nowhere, mm. right? And the business is going, is turning around and saying, man, right now is when we really need the insights. Give us our insights. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We've been doing all the setup work for the last decade. We haven't even touched yeah. this part. And they're just getting killed right now. I mean, they're just, it's, it's not pretty. Wow. That's a painful moment of truth uh, for sure. Now, Mark, I want to shift gears because um, as a chief marketing officer uh, of these large, successful global technology organizations, you know, being a strong leader obviously has been critical for those teams to achieve everything that uh, they were able to achieve. And I, I really want to get underneath your views on exceptional leadership. There's a difference between exceptional, obviously, and then just good enough. What do you think are the key drivers that really make the difference in exceptional leadership? Uh, informed perspective and empathy. And one kind of it rides on the other, right? Empathy is a, is an emotional extension of, of informed perspective. Um, a lot of people talk about this in the, in, in the context of being T-shaped or T-shaped talent. Um, so the vertical part of the T is your 
your professional expertise, your specialist knowledge, all that kind of stuff. And the horizontal part of the T is your contextual information, your informed understanding. Um, to put this into, you know, like a marketing or go-to-market context, this is a, a CMO who is a business leader first before they are a marketer, before anything else, they see the world, they see what they do and their teams do every day through a business lens, not a marketing lens, but a business lens. And they talk about marketing in business terms. I mean, if they're sitting around shooting the bull with their marketing team, they might use marketing terminology because it's a, it's a useful shorthand among professionals. Every profession has that, but that's inside baseball, right? And honestly, whether it's marketing or accounting or anything else, no one else outside of that profession cares about your inside baseball. So they want to understand it, whatever it is. So go to market. They want to understand go-to-market in the context of business and in the language of business. And the language of business is numbers. You know, um, I think one of the big realizations, too, for any leader, I don't care whether it's marketing or something else, is that there is no such thing. I mean, this is going to give a lot of people heartburn, but it's just the truth. There's no such thing as a marketing strategy or an IT strategy or a talent strategy. The only strategy that exists is a business strategy. Um, the strategy is about how are we going to win this war, right? Mm -hmm. um, and everything else is supporting cast for that. So there are marketing, there's an operational delivery of, of marketing and go to market. That's totally legit statement. There are tactics to it. That's totally legit as well. But there's not a marketing strategy that is separate and apart from the business strategy. That, and, and so that is, uh, I think, even before I became a CEO, that was... Uh, a key factor in the success of, of any leader uh, that I was privileged to learn from. And I think that, that that's what made the difference for me as well. I mean, if you think about analytics as an, as an exemplar of this analytics really says there's all these relationships that exist and they exist in kind of numerator denominator relationships. And in the case of what we're talking about here, business is the permanent denominator and everything else is a numerator. It's part of that business equation. Um, it's, it's not that business is a part of the marketing equation. It's not. And so I think that seeing, seeing the world in that way, certainly seeing what you do every day professionally in that way, really helps you have the right informed perspective. And then 
gives you the opportunity to build a lot of empathy, not only for the people who have to implement your strategy, but also for your audiences. You realize that your strategy, you know, there's this old saying in the military that, you know, that no plan survives the first shot being fired, right? And the same thing is true here. You know, I mean, like when you start, when you, when you're a founder of a startup, you are creating that startup because you believe you have an understanding of something and you have a very strong point of view on it. And you may be right, but as soon as you put it out, out into the marketplace, the marketplace is going to start telling you what they think. And one of your big jobs is to reconcile those two things. Because again, we're back to a numerator denominator relationship and you as the startup, you are definitely not the denominator. You are the numerator. The marketplace is the denominator and it's going to tell you whether you're successful or not. And it really doesn't matter how right you are. So I think one of the other things that I would say about leadership is that you have to be like, you have to be okay, not only with not being right, but like I had to abandon, like totally abandon my desire to be the smartest person in the room. Because my job was to hire people who were way smarter than me. And then to knock down every possible obstacle to them delivering the full value of their intelligence, right? That's, and so you have to be far more willing to be a really great question asker than somebody with all the answers. Yeah. What you just described there, Mark, I mean, that's at the essence of servant leadership and Yes, it is. Putting ego aside, right? You know, you use the word abandon, which I think is is perfect. It's spot on. It's a big, big commitment, but it's actually, it's setting that aside and it's all about focusing on team and focusing on others. So I love the way that you put that. And also, you know, as marketers uh, too, this, um, there's a, a, always a temptation to be a bit uh, of a more uh, isolationist in the sense of kind of working within kind of our bubble and you pointing out that, look, at the end of the day, the energy hub, the source and the reason for existence has to float back to the business strategy and how marketing can uh, effectively support that core business strategy, not the other way around. I love that that perspective uh, on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll just share this real fast. I mean, occasionally you buy a product that really connects with you. And several years ago, I bought a pair of glasses, glass frames. Um, And this company, essentially almost like a fortune cookie, on the inside of the right um, thing that goes over your ear, whatever that's called, right, in the glass frame, uh, the the bow, I guess, um, they put a little message. And it's randomly generated. Uh, I think it is anyway. And, uh, and so I, I get mine and I open it up and I open up the glass frames and on the inside it says, ego is the enemy. And 
I mean, I, I don't think I will ever turn loose of those frames. That's, that's very uh, memorable. I love that. You know, it's kind of inspirational. My only challenge would have been on my glasses to be able to read that, you know, without putting glasses <laughs> on, right? It's kind of like this quandary, you know, how do you, but I love that. Well, I, so I, you know, I, I, I guess it works for me because I end up taking my glasses on and off a lot. Yeah. Cause I refuse to speaking of ego, I refuse to, to, to go into, uh, you know, variable lenses and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm always taking mine off. And so it gives me the opportunity to read it yet again. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Now, one of the other aspects of exceptional leadership uh, also, you know, covered in, in my book is diversity, equity, inclusion. And leaders that are, let's use the glass analogy, that have a lens, that have a DEI lens that they're applying uh, across uh, team, team development, uh, performance, everything that they do can make a difference for you, Mark. How has diversity, equity, inclusion made a difference in terms of how your teams were able to perform and grow? Well, I tell you what, you know, I think that that is um, that is arguably the most important thing that we're talking about because um, so there is the moral and ethical piece to diversity and, and equity and inclusion that is inarguable. Right. And and kind of stands irrespective of anything else. But having said that, what I have learned as a leader is that diversity and inclusion have really profound practical advantages. So I started to cultivate my team of direct reports and even in some cases you know, having a say in their direct reports um, in this regard, because I wanted to surround myself with people not like myself. And one of the main, re- I, there were two reasons for that. One, I wanted to get the upside uh, from all that perspective and wisdom, but also it was a protective hedge against me making a mistake. Because when you make a mistake as a senior leader, particularly in a large company, it can also be a mistake in a small company, it can have devastating consequences. You literally can't afford it in one sense, right? Um, And so I wanted to do everything I possibly could with great intentionality to preclude that as much as possible. And then what I discovered, too, was that the job of a leader, specific to the way that diversity and inclusion or including diversity in in the way you make decisions every day, the way that that really plays is that this is not about, you know, homogenizing diverse people into some form of unanimous conclusion. This is about unity and victory. Unity in the midst of diversity. Victory in the midst of diversity. Right? This is about being unified, not by any sort of shared perspective, but unified by the mission, whatever the mission is. Um, and I think that that is 
so important that I'm still processing how important that is virtually every day, right? I, I feel like I, I kind of have, uh, I call it my, it happens so much that I call it my weekly epiphany, right? Because yeah. I'm, I'm just uh, uh, always running into kind of a different facet of that, you know? And sometimes, yeah, I mean, you know, because it really is true that when you're the leader, it's an incredibly lonely place. I think if, if most people realized in advance how lonely it is sometimes, they would not be in such a hurry to become one. Um, but you, you, the joy of it is because actually, you know, one of the things that's so interesting for me is uh, the more homogenous the group is around me, the more lonely I feel as a leader. The more diverse it is, it really takes that away almost entirely sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost, it's like, how do you build a sense of connection? You know, so you've got leader and you've got team building that, uh, an energy, kind of a connective energy. And that just seems to, to work better when you've got a greater diverse representation you know, in that, that's, that's a really interesting take on that. Now, something I've also heard you talk about, Mark, is this idea of teams that can transcend and become organisms. What's that all about? (laughs) So if you've ever watched a, again, a really great sports team play, right? I mean, in a more theatrical sense, the one that immediately comes to mind for me is the Harlem Globetrotters, Right. Um, where they they just knew they had played together for so long and they were all so good and they were all so about the team and the mission, which was winning the game and entertaining people, that they didn't even have to look at each other. They knew exactly where that each one was going to be on the court and they just transcended. They really did. They, they, that's exactly the word I would use. And so I've had two situations in my career where I became a part of an, of a team that, that became an organism, meaning where the amount of unspoken communication was very significant the the knowledge back and forth amongst all the people on the team of what the other was going to probably do and what that was going to how that was going to be was so significant almost totally complete that um that they didn't have to meet very much right in one sense right there wasn't all of these meetings to discuss everything. Um, and it's a, ter- it, it's just an incredibly intoxicating thing because you're also so aware of how perishable it is because if one or two people leave the team for whatever reason, the organism is broken for at least a period of time. 
you know, because you're bringing new people in and that changes everything. And now you're, you're not, you, you might have a great team, but you don't have an organism. And, uh, and so it, it, it's, it's, you know, like, um, if it's one, you know, hold on loosely, but don't let go. Yes. You know, you, uh, if you try to maintain an organism, you will absolutely destroy it. You will lose it. You, you, it's a, it's a, it's an ephemeral ethereal thing Mm -hmm. that you just kind of have to accept as a blessing in your life at that moment, knowing that it won't always be there. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. It's the moment that you're too intentional and trying too hard is at the point at which you're going kind of taking it in the opposite direction. That's fascinating. And, and it's actually very Zen. It is. It's deep. Yeah. It's very Zen. Yeah. 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 Thank you for sharing that. Now, uh, obviously, you know, in your, your various roles and, and even at proof, you know, you are continuously sharing perspectives, you're giving advice, you're helping influence. I want to flip this around, Mark, and over the course of your career, what's the best piece of business advice you have ever received? Wow. I think that, that, that really it's, it's, um, Be open. Be open to yeah. feedback on your idea. Be open to the fact that circumstances outside of your control may have just invalidated your strategy that you had. Now you have to do something different. Um You know, being open is is the antithesis of ego. Yes. Right? And so suppress, be be I'm I'm at constant war, which which you know implicit in that statement is that I don't always win, right? But I am in, in constant combat with my ego. Um and I used to approach it as a, as kind of like a, from a negative perspective, like I will not allow my ego to take over. Uh, and that, that works, but, but it's, it's ultimate efficacy is sort of limited because, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. So you can suppress your ego, but if you don't replace it with something, then the ego will come back, right. And refill the, the hole. Um, and so that's where empathy and informed mm-hmm. perspective are really the positive antidotes. Cause I think that the only, the only, I mean, the only thing that really limits business success in the end is an inability to see the truth of a situation and make the right choice and sustain the right choice. You know, and that, and that makes it sound like a lot easier than it really is. Um, there's so much under all three of those points that is brutal, right? 
And by the way, let me just say this. If you want to really understand yourself probably to a far greater degree than you really want to, and to have an opportunity to become a better person, do a startup, particularly as a founder, do a startup. It is whatever your ideas of business success or business advice are, that experience will disabuse you of most of them. And you will realize that in the end, it's not the systems. So we let's, let's talk about it for just a second is people process technology, right? Process and technology, hugely important, no doubt about it, right? But that triangle has never been equilateral. It is highly scaling. It is totally skewed towards people. And people are, are where are, that is the, the basis of business success and business failure are the people involved. Not just in the business, but in it, but the marketplace that you're selling to. And this is this is why, not to get off chart off the track here, but this is why your ICP is so crucial. Because if you are selling or marketing to the wrong people, and wrong has lots of different definitions to it in this case, there's so many different ways you can get it wrong, then you will fail. You will absolutely fail. And yet, if you had just marketed it to a different group of people, to a different ICP, you could have been hugely successful. But in order to do that, you have to be able to move past your own ego, your own preconceptions, your own thoughts. You have to be willing to say, like one of the ways that I I evaluate somebody's maturity is how I ask them, how many beliefs have you been willing to abandon in the face of facts? That's so I'm I'm trying to answer your question at, at it kind of like coming from a number of different points on the compass that all end up in the same place, right? And that it's not about a magic bullet piece of advice. It's about being the right person. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it's about back to having a humbleness and a high level of self-awareness and a willingness to accept. Uh, that uh, those preconceived notions may not be 100% correct. And I think there's been a lot of those special moments over the last three years with all the dynamics in our world and markets, certainly uh, wake-up calls. So let's- I call, I call them Don Quixote moments. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. When you realize that you really are tilting at the windmill. Yeah, yeah. Now, we were talking earlier in the conversation around the power of analytics being forward-looking and or predictive in nature. So I'm going to feed off of that. And to you, Mark, when you look ahead to the future, what makes you optimistic? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So um, I 
so w- I don't know if I would necessarily frame it that way. Um, if opportunity to do good and not do evil is is good is is a reason to be optimistic, right? And I and I do think it is, right? Then what we are seeing today is an unprecedented opportunity, right? Chat GPT or generative AI, right, is one of many examples of a technology, which, by the way, technologies are almost always amoral. They are morally neutral. And it's what you choose to do with them that makes them good or bad. Nuclear power is nuclear fission is a great example. Genetic engineering is another great example. The list goes on and on, right? Analytics is a great example. Um, And so I think that we are seeing the, we're not, we're in it, we're entering into, we have been in, but we are entering into an era of massive technological leverage where the opportunity to do good is, will never have been greater than it will be in the next 10 to 20 years. But there's a flip side to that as well. And so I'm very, I'm very hopeful, very optimistic about what that could mean. Um, but I'm also aware of human nature, at least for some people, right? Um, and so I, I, I think, I think that there's an old saying in Texas that if you don't like the weather in Texas, wait a few moments and it will change. Yes. Right. Um, if you don't like the situation in the next 20 years, just wait a little bit and it's going to change again. Um, and that is whether you're approaching it you know, socially, you know, socioeconomic, politically, or from a business point of view or whatever, that means an, an endless um, set of opportunities to do good and to thwart bad. And, uh, and I think that, that, that is a, that's a huge reason to be optimistic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what an interesting landscape. We have ahead. Well, Mark, as we start wrapping up our conversation, do you have any other final advice for business leaders that are looking to keep driving that sustainable growth? Yeah, be commit be committed to sustainability itself. Right? Sustainability is not searching for the hockey stick. Right? Because the hockey stick itself is is not a exemplar of sustainability. And particularly when you look at it as, I mean, one of the oldest laws of physics is for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, right? So if you hockey stick in revenue, there will be an equal and opposite reaction to that. Usually, in the case of a startup, one of the big ways that that is manifested, you know, 12 to 18 months later, is a lot of churn. Because you 
you're selling a lot, but you're probably not delivering what you promised. And, you know, it's just, it's a bad deal, right? So be committed to slower growth, but more sustainable growth. Be committed to not running out of money, right? Um, Give up the idea that you can get rich quick. Because again, that has an equal and opposite reaction. These are all things too that are analytically borne out. There are countless analytical relationships that illustrate this, right? Where there's a, a whiplash effect uh, on anything that happens too fast and, and to, uh, in too extreme a way, right? So I, I, that's what that's what I would say is you 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 know we talk about sustainability we talk about it from an environmental perspective and lots of other ways you you can't you can't use that rhetoric and then behave differently in your business you can't yeah there's no integrity in that in that position and there's also a lot of practical issues with that as we're all seeing right here right now right so um yeah that's that's what that would be my answer great words of advice well mark thanks again for coming on the podcast and sharing your journey towards being this innovative passionate champion for true analytics and also your leadership perspective in in leading successful teams and some of the dynamics that really drive exceptional versus just good enough leadership. Thanks again. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. And a reminder to please continue to give feedback on this podcast, how we can continue to get better. You can go out, rate and review on all the major podcast platforms. That includes Apple podcast, as well as Spotify. And as always, make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.